we are talking about Israel, again, because of, of current events. I don't mind uh, current events informing uh, the, the material that we cover uh, and addressing those things, uh, in, particularly in Sunday school. Uh, the, the current events in Israel today raise questions for many evangelicals about uh, how we are to think of modern Israel. Uh, there's a, a significant tradition uh, that, that really took root uh, about 100 years ago in the West, in the church in the West, uh, a system of theology that we refer to as dispensationalism. Dispensationalism teaches that uh, the, the Jewish nation is still God's people. It actually, they teach God has two people. God has the ethnic Jews, and he has the church. And he's made separate promises to each, and those promises will receive separate fulfillment, etc. Uh, in 1948, when the modern nation-state of Israel was established, that, that particular approach to reading the Bible, they said, see, this is the fulfillment of prophecy. Uh, the modern nation-state of Israel is God's people and this is his nation. Uh, and we, we don't believe that that's a correct understanding of Scripture at all. Uh, and so what I wanted to do, and we started last week, is begin to wrestle with the question of who is Israel according to God's Word. Uh, last week, we looked at particularly the, the name Israel and some of the other words that Scripture uses to refer to Israel uh, and we considered how those words are used in Scripture. And we saw that uh, Israel refers to an individual, a particular person in history, a man named Jacob, one of the, the patriarchs. We saw how Israel refers to the nation apart from land and sovereignty, so that the people of God in slavery in Egypt are referred to as Israel. Uh, Israel refers to the nation-state. When they come into the land, conquer the peoples, are constituted as a sovereign nation on a particular land, and then particularly when they have a king, Saul, uh, the nation is known as Israel. Israel can refer to the northern kingdom after the kingdom is divided into a northern and a southern kingdom. And we kind of reviewed that, that history. Last week's lesson is online if you missed it and want to go back and, and catch up. Uh, but we also saw how Israel refers to the Messiah as an individual. He's referred to as Israel. And we saw in the New Testament how Israel refers to the people of God apart from questions of ethnicity and focused entirely on questions of spiritual identity, those who trust in Christ. Uh, we're going to come back to that because that's, that's really the heart of our argument. But I also wanted to address land, and that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about uh, how land and the land promises made to Israel in the Old Testament, uh, how does that fit into all of redemption, all of the work of salvation that God is doing in history? Uh, because it's a key part of the dispensational understanding of Scripture as well. Uh, and we're going to, to take up dispensationalism probably next Sunday uh, in detail. We're going to talk about precisely what it is that they believe and why they believe it. But before we jump into the land, uh, let me pray, and then I want to remind you of some, some caveats, and then we'll consider 
what Scripture has to say about the land. Father, thank you for time together. In your word this morning, we pray that you would lead us to a right understanding of who Israel is and therefore who we are and the fact that the promises made have been made to us. Uh, Father, we thank you for this truth and we pray that uh, more and more we would come to a right understanding of who we are in Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, A couple of things, like I said, before we jump into land. First of all, uh, this is not a peripheral issue. If you're tempted to think uh, this is a, a question of systematic theology, people for whom systematic theology is a little bit of a hobby, uh, you know, that's fine if this is something they want to wrestle with. Uh, you know, there's, there's probably a right answer, but I don't know how important it is that I know that right answer. I want to make clear to you that the question of who Israel is according to God's Word, goes to the heart of the gospel. And I'll give you an example of of why. In our worship this morning, uh, we confessed our sins. And in confessing our sins, we heard from God's Word an assurance of pardon. That assurance of pardon is from Isaiah 44. Listen to the pardon that you received in worship. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel. For you are my servant, I formed you, you are my servant, O Israel. You will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. How can we stand in worship and tell you those promises are for you when you are neither ethnically Jewish nor are we a synagogue? In what sense can those promises be for you? Are we just finding promises and saying they must be for you, they're promises, God made them? That wouldn't be very sound interpretation, would it? No, what we need to ask ourselves is, are those promises for us? And if so, how can we claim them? How can we argue that those promises are for us if they're made to Israel? Because if they are made to Israel and we are not Israel, then they are not ours. This is a gospel issue. It gets to the very heart of what God is doing in redemptive history. And it matters. It's important for you to understand so that when you take up God's word and you read God's promises to Israel, to Jerusalem, to Jacob, that you are able to understand and believe these are my promises. These promises are for me because I am trusting in Jesus Christ and therefore I am Israel, right? So these things matter. I want to also remind you, in case you weren't here last week or in case you're tempted to forget, that what we're doing in these few weeks is not geopolitics. Uh, I'm not uh, interested in arguing and defending a pro-Israeli or a pro-Palestinian. I'm not here as somebody who's for or against a one-state solution or a two-land solution or any, any of the options out there. I'm not here to resolve that. Uh, but we are Christians in the world, and there is a tendency in evangelicalism to say the nation of Israel is the people of God, and therefore we must support them Even if we we believe they're doing things they shouldn't, they're God's people and we have to support them, Uh, it's bad theology. 
And I want to not simply stand up and say, no, that's wrong, not that, but this. I want to show you from God's word why it is that we don't believe that we owe political allegiance to the modern nation state of Israel because of some theological teaching in Scripture. Uh, God has not taught us that that's, that's true. In fact, quite uh, to the contrary. Uh, let me put it to you this way. There are Jews living in Israel who are Christians. There are Jews, most of them living in Israel, who are socialists and atheists. There are Palestinians living in Gaza who are trusting Christ and are our brothers and sisters. And there are Palestinians living in Gaza who not only are willing to, even gleefully willing to, but have in fact executed horrible and wicked sins and atrocities and are rejecting Christ. See, the, the issue is far more complicated than simply throwing all of our political weight behind Israel. There may be excellent reasons to support the modern nation state of Israel politically, right? That's not my concern in this class. I'm not interested in that. Uh, the question is, is the modern nation state of Israel the fulfillment of prophecy and the particular nation of God? Are they his people? Okay, so with all that in mind, we looked at people last week. We're going to look at land this morning. There's another way that the, that the name Israel is used in Scripture that we didn't cover last week, and that is that Israel can refer to the land, right? The, the particular place that when... Uh, that you can use that name like this. You can say, I'm leaving Egypt and going to Israel. Israel's a place. Uh, and in the Old Testament, it's a particular place. Uh, the exact boundaries of that place change over the course of the Old Testament. They find their greatest extent under Solomon's reign, uh, and then they begin to diminish. And then there's some you know, better periods where they begin to expand a little bit, and they diminish until finally... Uh, the people of Israel, Judah in particular, uh, are overcome by the Babylonians, and in the Old Testament period anyways, that's the end of their sovereignty and identity as a political uh, entity. They, they cease to be the nation of Israel politically with any sovereignty. So uh, let's, let's look then at the land. The land uh, in, the, in the Old Testament under Moses and the Exodus, the land is a key part of the promise. And not just Moses, but Abraham. Uh, and we're going to look at these verses in a minute. God promises land to Abraham, and, uh, and then God keeps that promise. Remember, he says to Abraham, uh, your offspring are going to sojourn in another nation, Egypt, for 400 years, and then I'm going to bring them back, and I'll give them this land. Uh, that promise is fulfilled in the Old Testament. The, the question we, we need to ask, what we need to recognize is, is that the full extent of the land promise? What is God doing here? Why does God promise a particular parcel of land to Abraham and his offspring? Uh, and then he, he gives it to them, and the text, we'll see, says God kept all of his promises. 
And then they're obedient a little bit and disobedient a little bit and finally very disobedient and God removes them from the land and they're gone for 70 years and even when they come back, it's never what it was before and there's no real sovereignty until there's a, a brief between the Old and New Testaments period of independence, but that doesn't last long. Uh, and then they come under Greek rule and then they come under Roman rule uh, and then finally there's no particular Jewish identity in that land uh, in terms of there being a, a Jewish nation there until 1948. And so what was God doing with the land that he promised to Abraham? What was the point of giving that land to Abraham? What we find when we begin to back out, when we step back from the narrow focus of the land as, as a promise to Abraham fulfilled in history, is we find that God was actually using all of that as an illustration he was teaching us about a much bigger truth. And if that's the case, then we should expect to see evidence of that in Scripture, right? Let's look at Genesis 1 through 3. And I'm going to, uh, I'm going to show you something here in Genesis, uh, and it's reasonable, but I, I would completely understand if you don't find it convincing until we get to Revelation, the end of Revelation. And we will before the end of class today, the Lord willing. Right? So let's look. Let's look at what, what it was that God gave Adam and Eve to do. I'm in chapter 1, verse 28. So we've, we've had the, uh, the six days of creation, and finally, uh, on the sixth day of creation, God makes Adam and, uh, and Eve, and verse 28, God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I, I think uh, if, if nobody's ever taught you this before, we are inclined to read that and we recognize the, the idea of having children. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Right? Have lots of children. Fill the earth with people. And subdue it. Uh, if you read carefully, the Garden of Eden is not the whole earth. Uh, it's, it's clear with a careful reading of Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 that the Garden of Eden is a part of, the, new, uh, of the, the creation, but it's not the whole creation. The whole world is not the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is a particular place in this creation. And what was true of the Garden of Eden is that it was an orderly place. It was a place that bore fruit. It was particularly the place where God met with Adam and Eve. It was the place where God had fellowship with man. That's what made it special. These other things were true of it as well. Yes, uh, it was beautiful. Yes, it bore fruit. It provided everything that Adam and Eve had need of. Uh, but what made it particularly special is that this is where God was in fellowship with his people, Adam and Eve. What are they being instructed to do then when God tells them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it? What he's telling them to do is now push out 
the boundaries of the garden. Increase the garden, and therefore increase their dominion. And therefore increase, it's it's not just people. This is not a biology. It's not an evolutionary history. What God is saying is, I want you to multiply the people that I am in fellowship with. Bear worshipers of God. Fill the earth and subdue it to my worship. The subdue, we're we're inclined, this is what I started to say a minute ago, we're inclined to read subdue and imagine gardening. We kind of joke about having to mow the, the lawn and, you know, this is our, our calling to subdue the earth, bring it, bring it under subjection. It's wild and crazy. Let's cut the weeds back. Let's get the grass down, right, orderly. There's something true in that in terms of, of it being an illustration, but it, the, the deeper truth that is being revealed here in Genesis is that God has made the world for himself. Shorter Catechism 1, right? What is the chief end of man? That is, why, why do we exist, primarily? The chief, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. God's plan, revealed to Adam and Eve here in Genesis 1.28, is that they would have children and fill the earth with worshipers of God, and in so doing, bring the whole world under their dominion as regents of God as representatives of the king in the world. Now, we'll look at it in a minute. We're not going to go straight to it yet. But part of the reason we understand that this is what's actually happening here is because when we get to the end of all things, we see that this is, this is what happens. The new heavens and the new earth will be filled with worshipers of God. What God tells them to do here, they fail to do. God will do it Himself in the end, and it also gives context to who we are now in the world. Because what is the greatest calling that the church has in the world? It's to share the gospel. And when that gospel goes out and is believed, what what changes for the person who believes? maybe a lot of particular details about how their life changes, but what ultimately changes is they go from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive and therefore worshipers of God. So that as the gospel goes out and it is heard and believed, the world is being subdued to the dominion of God as people hear and believe and become worshipers of God. So not only do we see that that's what God's going to do in the end, It's what God is doing now in and through us, right? This is what we would call the redemptive historical context in which we live. So it begins with God saying to an Adam and Eve in the garden who have not yet sinned, here is your mission, here is your purpose. Fill the world with worshipers of me. Subdue the world to me. That's what they're called to do. It's the whole world. When Adam and Eve fall, they're kicked out of the garden. And again, being raised in, you know, faithfully in evangelicalism and being a little kid, right? Uh, I, my, my automatic assumption was, what a bummer. 
I mean, they just had fruit to pick and eat whenever they wanted. Life was easy, right? I, you, you imagine Adam and Eve just sort of lounging. The animals apparently could talk, so they're having conversations with animals. Life is good. It's easy. And now they're going to have to work. Listen, don't miss this. That is the furthest thing from what is heartbreaking about being expelled from the garden. That Adam will have to work harder now to get fruit from the trees is, is just an illustration. It's, it's meant to teach us something deeper and truer. Here's, here's the deepest truth about being kicked out of the garden. The garden is where they had fellowship with God. And that fellowship with God was the source of their life. God not only gave them life in the beginning, He sustained that life by His fellowship. And their expulsion from the garden was a breaking of that fellowship and therefore the source of life. This is why Christ will use the, the language in the Gospels. I am the vine and you are the branches. Right? We're, we're dependent upon Him as a source of life. Cut the branches off and the branches die. This is why Paul in Romans will use the illustration of the tree and pruning the tree and, and limbs being cut out and limbs being grafted in because Christ is the source of life. And we only have life and fellowship with Him. And this is why God, from the very beginning in the Old Testament, will use this, we, we refer to it often as a, a covenantal title or a covenantal definition. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people, and I will be with you. The land, the Garden of Eden, is where God dwells with his people, and therefore is life to them. Now, we've lost that. Being kicked out of the garden, we were cut off. God is going to show us. He tells us in Genesis 3.15 Right, that he's, he's going to go to war with the serpent and restore that fellowship. He begins to show that to us with Abraham. He comes to Abraham and he makes a promise to Abraham. And that promise has several elements to it. One of those elements is that he'll be a great people. So we've talked about that, and right? It's, it's Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the Twelve, and through Judah the Messiah is coming. And so there's, there's this Old Testament people but he also promises land. So look at Genesis uh, chapter 15. In Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham. Uh, and in verse 18 in particular, he says, this is the covenant's being cut, the sun has gone down, Abram's having a vision of God. And it says, on that day, the Lord God, or the Lord, made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And then he describes all the peoples who are living in that land that will be dispossessed so that God's people may possess it. The, the entire purpose of the promise made to Abram of land is to illustrate the new heavens and the new earth. It's to illustrate, it's God saying to them, there is a place where I dwell with you. And I'm going to restore you to that place. Now, we could actually spend weeks just, just digging joyfully through Scripture on this 
thing, this one question, and all of the ways in which this is supported. But I just want to hit a couple of them really quickly. I'll give you an example of something that supports this, is the temple. And we've talked about the temple before. We preached through, uh, through Exodus, and I've done a Sunday school lesson on the temple uh, series. Uh, the temple is a microcosm of the entire world. When you look at how the temple is described, uh, and particularly it's referred to as the tabernacle, that tent, when God is giving Moses directions on how to design and build the tabernacle, which is just a tent version of the temple that will be built by Solomon later, when he's giving instructions for that, when you look at the nature of those instructions, what you find is the entire temple complex that God commands him to build is a microcosm of the universe, the created universe, the cosmos. And, and there is a particular place in the temple where God dwells, and that is in the Holy of Holies. And in order to get into the Holy of Holies, you have to pass through a veil, and that veil, it, it, you kind of have to go around the ends of it. There, there's no... It's not like a curtain in your house that's split in the middle. It's, it's solid, and it's multiple layers. And embroidered on that veil are two cherubim. Why two cherubim? Those two cherubim stand there guarding the entrance to the Holy of Holies, saying this place where when you enter into it, you enter into fellowship with God in a particular way, you're not allowed to come in here you've been expelled. And it, it's, it's meant to draw our memories back to Genesis 3, where when God kicks them out of the garden, he places cherubim with flaming swords at the entrance to keep them from coming back in. Except that somebody is allowed into the Holy of Holies, right? Who's allowed into the Holy of Holies? The high priest. And how often in the Old Testament? once a year, and then only if he comes bringing what? The blood of the atonement. And he has to also have made atonement for himself before he makes atonement for the people, right? And he comes into this place and he applies the blood to the altar. And in so doing, accomplishes atonement, which if you've not heard me say this before, uh, atonement is a word that was made up uh, early in the history of the translation of Scripture into English because the Hebrew word did not have an English equivalent. Uh, and so, I, and this sounds unbelievable, but it's, at, it's in the Oxford English Dictionary, which is as authoritative as you get with respect to the English language. Uh, they, what they recognized in the Hebrew word is what's being accomplished in this atonement, this thing. What's happening is God and man are being made one again in fellowship. Our fellowship is being restored into, into a united relationship. And so they, they literally took the words at one. We've been divided, but now we are restored in fellowship. We are at one and ment, M-E-N-T, is just a, a, a particular particle in the English language that gives action to it. Atonement, the action of being made one again in fellowship. When the high priest comes into the Holy of Holies and applies the blood, figuratively, 
in the Old Testament context, it's pointing to God and man, that fellowship broken in the garden by our sin, being restored by the death of someone in our place, someone qualified. The temple then even has imagery that reminds us of the garden. The garden, which is described with all of its beautiful vegetation and uh, gold and silver and precious stones. And when you read the description of the, the temple, it's, it's covered in gold and silver and precious stones. The, the garden and the temple are meant to reflect one another, and the temple sits at the middle, if you will, of the people of God. Uh, it's literally in the middle when it's the tabernacle and they're in the wilderness. God actually gives them literal marching order. He says, these three tribes are going to go first, and then uh, the temple is going to go, and these three tribes will be on either side, and these three tribes will be behind. The temple is literally under march, and when it's set up in the midst of God's people, because God is in the midst of his people. When they get to the promised land, and this is set up permanently in Jerusalem, that, that promised land is, is them being restored to the garden in a figurative sense. So let me, let me point to something else. Do the people remain in the land throughout the entire Old Testament? They don't. Why don't they? Sin, right? Sunday school answer. Sin, right? It's as easy as it sounds. They are ejected. They are expelled from the promised land for sin. Do you see how that, that reflects the garden? Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden because of their sin. Israel kicked out of the land because of their sin. But there's so much language in Scripture of God saying to Israel, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to restore what's been taken. In the same way that God restores His people, Israel, to the land after the 70 years of captivity in Babylon, He restores us to the garden. So the garden is a literal place on earth where God dwells with man. We are expelled because of sin. God, in saying to us, I'm going to restore you to that garden, gives us illustrations of it in history. And the greatest illustration in history is the people of Israel in the promised land. Now, why then isn't that little patch of land still what God is concerned with today? We're arguing it's not. Why? How can we argue that? We can argue that for several reasons. First of all, uh, <clears throat> we can argue that that is not the, the patch of land because the promise God made to Abraham was fulfilled in the same limited fashion in which it was given. Look at uh, Joshua. Turn to the book of Joshua. That promise to, to give that land is reiterated. It's given to Abraham, and it's reiterated uh, to, his, uh, to the, the patriarchs, his sons, Isaac and Jacob, and to the 12 tribes. Uh, you can go uh, to Exodus 3.8, and you'll see that promise reiterated after the 400 years of slavery. 
Joshua chapter 11. The book of Joshua in the Old Testament is the book of conquest. Remember that the people are delivered from slavery in Egypt. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years, a generation, and then they go into the promised land that God gives to them. But there's people there already, and those people are under God's judgment. So that Israel enters into the promised land both as a receiving of the promises and they execute God's judgment against the wicked who were there, right? And so the book of Joshua describes that period of history of the the people of Israel conquering the peoples who live in the land God is giving them. And we get some, in Joshua, we get the narrative of them crossing the Jordan into the promised land, and some of those initial battles, Jericho most famously, but also the trouble they had at Ai, uh, and ultimately prevailing over Ai. But then we hit this this part of the book of Joshua where if you look at the headings uh, in in chapter 10 and chapter 11, it's the conquest of southern Canaan and the conquest in northern Canaan. So we kind of get the point with the first few battles and cities that they defeat. And then the narrator, probably Joshua, uh, it goes on to say, and in the south they, they conquered these folks, and in the north they conquered these folks. And look at what we get in chapter 11 uh, and verse 23. We've come to the end of the conquering of the northern and southern portions of Canaan, and it says, So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest. From war. Now, yes, we know that in the period of the judges, uh, we, it, it becomes clear that they've not completely expelled everybody. There continues to be some limited warfare. Judges are raised up to, do, to defeat them. Those, the, that limited warfare is a result of their sin, you'll remember, in judges. The people are in the land, they have rest, but then they rebel against God. So he raises up nations against them. And then they cry out and they repent, so he raises up a judge who overcomes the nation that's attacking them, and there's, again, a period of peace and faithfulness under the judge until the judge dies, and then the cycle starts over again. That's judges. But in Joshua, there's a reason we're told that it was all accomplished, because as an image, as a figure for us that the land represents, that image is is done, it's fulfilled. What God intended to do with that image of the promised land, he's done. He's going to do more with it, but he wants us to see that he promised to give it to them, and he gave it to them. Later in Joshua, chapter 21, coming near the end of the narrative in Joshua, chapter 21, verse 45, it's even clearer. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Why is God so determined to give us such clear language that he made a promise to Abraham and he's fulfilled it? He's done. I promised it. It happened. It's done. It's done perfectly. It's because that land, that promised land as a, as a limited place in time and space has served its primary purpose. Now again, God's going to use it later. He's going to remove the people of Israel from it because of their sin. And then he's going to restore them to it. 
But even that is meant as a figure for us, removed because of sin, restored because of the promises of God. They're, they're not restored to it. You can read about that restoration to the land, uh, primarily in Ezra and Nehemiah. They're not restored to it because it turns out they're so mighty that the Babylonians had to take them into consideration. Persians is, is who sends them back. The Persians, the Persians would never have thought to themselves, if we don't give the Jews their land back, we're, we're really going to have a problem on our hands. The conversation would have sounded more like, Cyrus, should we send the Israelites back to their land? And Cyrus saying, the who? What people? They had conquered so many peoples. And Cyrus, as the, the leader of Persia, his title was not king, it was king of kings, right? He, he was not concerned about the Israelites causing trouble. And yet they go back. So God restores them to their land. So there's a stronger reason, though. Turn to Hebrews 11. A stronger basis upon which we can claim that that land in the Old Testament was just a figure. It was just meant to teach us something about what God was doing. It was not actually the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. It was the, the short-term fulfillment. It was the, the time-bound fulfillment, if you will. Uh, it was a figurative fulfillment, but it wasn't actually the fulfillment. How do we know this? Because the one that he made the promise to didn't understand the promise to be fulfilled by a, a literal, physical land that had borders in history. The one to whom he made the promise understood it for what it was. Look at what it says. We're in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. <clears throat> by faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise. As in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That's a, that's a spiritual place. That's someplace much grander than the, the cities that my offspring are going to build out of, you know, brick. Much grander. The city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Look down at verse 13 and six, through 16 in the same chapter there. He's, he's mentioned several of the, the patriarchs and their wives, and he says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles, not in the promised land, Strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Does that language sound like it's making reference to the historical city of Jerusalem 
in the historical land of Palestine? Is that what they're looking for? Is that what the one to whom he gave the promises believed? I would argue that it's not. The, the, the language is far more elevated here. He's looking for something far better than just a city of his own in a region of his own where perhaps he can be left alone. They died in faith, acknowledging that they are strangers and exiles on the earth and instead looking for a better country, a heavenly one. That's what Abraham understood. Abraham understood that God was making heavenly promises to him and that God himself would be the builder and maker. And Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. Are we to believe that the place that Christ went to prepare is a happier, more peaceful Palestine? We come finally to Revelation chapter 21. Here John, in receiving the revelation, is, is getting insight into how all of this ends. And it doesn't end in Palestine, in the literal city of Jerusalem. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. All of the images are finally coming to fulfillment. Finally here we see what it is God has been saying to us all along by way of illustration. The promise that God made to Abraham to give him a land was a promise of the new heavens and the new earth. Not merely a promise that the eastern Mediterranean would be his for a bit. And Abraham himself knew that. Abraham himself was looking for the greater fulfillment of the promise. And John gets a vision of that fulfillment as the church, referred to as the new Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven, a new heaven, a new Jerusalem, a new earth. And all of it belongs to the people of God. In the new heavens and the new earth, God's people will not be relegated to a corner of it. We will not inhabit the eastern Mediterranean while the rest of the world belongs to nobody or the lost. That's not how it's portrayed or described here. The entire new heavens and the new earth belongs to the people of God. And that people is New Jerusalem set in the middle of it. So, we're, we're going to come back to these issues of people and land uh, next week because we're going we're to take this up and then we're going to begin asking, what does dispensationalism teach and believe? And the reason that we're going to address it is that dispensationalism is single-handedly responsible for the wrong view that most evangelicals hold today, whether they know it or not. You, if you grew up in a Bible church or many Southern Baptist churches, you may have had it explicitly taught to you. 
But honestly, if you grew up in an evangelical church that was not reformed, you, this is what you were being taught implicitly or explicitly. Uh, until recently, there really was no competing view. Dispensationalism was the vast, overwhelming majority of, uh, of evangelicals that believed it. And we'll talk about that, why that is as well, next week. So, okay, let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you for time today in your word. We thank you that your promises to Abraham and therefore to us, who are the offspring of Abraham, are much greater than merely securing a few hundred thousand square miles uh, where we can be comfortable. But you have promised to be our God and that we would be your people. And that that project that you set us onto in the garden in creation to fill the earth and subdue it is a project that we are now engaged in spiritually and which we know will find its final fulfillment in a new heavens and a new earth filled with worshipers. Father, we long for that day and we pray that until then we would not lose hope and until then we would not ignore the mission that you've sent us on. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.